Well, as I mentioned uh, a few times, uh, we're jumping into the book of 2 Peter. It's actually a little letter of 2 Peter, just three chapters. 2 Peter was uh, written shortly before Peter's death, which would have been sometime between 65 AD and 68 AD. Uh, uh, The emperor Nero uh, was done with his reign in 68 AD. He's the one who executed Peter, so we know that Peter died before Nero was done. Uh, So Peter died somewhere between 65 and 68 AD. Uh, We don't know exactly where Peter's writing this from, but it's probably also writing from Rome um, and most likely to the same group of people uh, that 1 Peter was written to. Uh, As he nears his death, uh, persecution is rising, uh, and Peter aims to give his readers strength. That's what his his goal is. So a common theme we're going to see that he wants to help his believers is to not fail and also to be strengthened. Does that have any kind of ring of familiarity to you, to not fall, fall I should say, not fail, similar, but to not fall and also be strengthened? Peter is a man who fell three times as he denied Christ. And then afterwards, or actually before that, Christ told him, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And so no doubt over these 30 years that Peter has now been in this sort of ministry from his restoration up until 65, 66 AD, it's been about 30 some years, a common theme, most likely throughout his entire 30-year tenure, is to help people not fall like he did, and then taking those words that Christ told him that were emblazoned in his heart, my job is to strengthen my brothers. That's my job. That's, that's his true north, because that's what Jesus told him to do. When you turn again, strengthen your brothers. No doubt he took that into his heart and made that a goal of his 30 years. So we're going to see that a lot in Second Peter that his goal is to help us to not fall and also to be strengthened. Today, uh, in these first paragraphs, we're going to be encouraged by Peter's opening, but we're also going to be challenged. Peter's going to be very challenging to us. He's going to warn us that if our eyes are fixed upon the wrong things, even good things, but if our eyes are fixed on something so closely, we can miss the point. We can go astray. And we can do this by blinding ourselves, even with good things. So let me pray and ask the Lord to lead us into his word today as we open up this little letter called Second Peter. Father, we again come to you because we're needy, because we're desperate, and we are dependent. We need your truth. Without your truth, we will go astray, we will fall, and we will not be strengthened. We will be going in our own strength, which is actually just weakness. And so we ask that your word would go out into our ears, into our minds, but it wouldn't stop at our minds, because that's what actually Peter's going to warn us about, is knowledge that just remains as knowledge. We need this knowledge to go into our hearts and be supplemented with other virtues, other character traits that you sanctify us in so that we can be truly effective as ministers of the gospel. So Holy Spirit, help us and lead us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simeon Peter, which is the Hebrew version of the word Simon, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We're going to cover more, but we're going to stop right there as we just open up and focus on this introduction that Peter gives to us. I love that right off the bat, Peter recognizes the equality of righteous standing among all believers. 
He states that he's both a servant, which in the Greek is the word slave. He's a slave of Christ. He's a servant of Christ, but yet he's also an apostle of Christ. So he's, he's both. He's a leader, but he's also a servant. And yet in that, he's actually equal with all of us and his readers when it comes to his righteousness. It's a quite stark contrast with the old Peter, isn't it? The one who would get in an argument, hey, who's the greatest? Remember, he, he wanted to know who the greatest was. They, they would argue about those things. And then in that night in the upper room, he said, even if everyone else falls away, I will never fall. So Peter, we know, had kind of a, a bigger view of himself before. And now here he is, the end of his life, and he says, to all the saints who have an equal standing with me. There's no one greater in the kingdom. We're all equal standing in the righteousness of God because our righteousness comes from Christ alone, not from ourselves. So Peter is truly a changed man. There's another reason why he states that equality in this time that Peter's writing, there's a lot of false teachings that were rising up. Most notably, there was a group called the Gnostics. Gnostics were kind of this uh, group that was around for the first two or three centuries. Uh, Gnostic uh, comes from the word gnosis, which means knowledge. That's where we get prognosis, right? a forward knowledge. What's your prognosis? Uh, agnostic actually means no knowledge, which is kind of funny. Um, but agnostic means I don't have knowledge. It means I don't really know. Uh, so this, these Gnostics were people who claimed to have a special knowledge of the spiritual realm. And you could only really truly have a, a right view of spirituality if you had this special knowledge uh, that you attained. So they claimed to have the special knowledge, the real kind of inside scoop. They led a very kind of pseudo-spiritual life that claimed that they had this experiential knowledge that was only obtained uh, just by this you know, kind of secret way. And that's how you get true faith. And that true and pure godliness is spirit only. And anything in physical form is actually made by, an, is part of an evil world. So anything physical is a lesser world. And only the spiritual uh, is good. So they had this kind of really ascetic sort of a lifestyle where they disdained anything physical. It was formed by this lesser God, something like that. Uh, but they saw the spiritual life, this kind of like inward sort of, you know, thing as this uh, special way to attain godliness and divinity. So when Peter talks about a faith of equal standing, he's also reinforcing to the believers that are reading his letter that there is no special club or secret knowledge or secret handshake that needs to be obtained because that was a common thing that was kind of rising up. In fact, Peter's going to state it's actually the opposite of that. Look back at verse 3, says his divine power, God's divine power, not a divine power that we find through some divine sort of secret knowledge, but God's divine power has granted to us. It's something that's given to us, not something earned, not something we kind of figure out, but his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So Everything you need for life and godliness isn't something you earn or figure out, but it's something that is granted to you. You are gifted all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge. So he's going to use this word knowledge quite a bit because there's a common theme in this day. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God alone has divine power. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And that very power, the power that created the universe, grants to us, not earned, but grants to us, and remember, equally, equally grants to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The Apostle Paul said similarly in Ephesians chapter 1 in his introduction, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, every single one, every blessing in the heavenly places, you've been given. Even as he, God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So that's why you've been given every blessing in the heavenly realm, so that you can be holy and blameless before God. God provides for us all of our needs for all of our life, and for all of our godliness. God is not withholding from you anything. Picture, you, you buy your son or your daughter maybe a new bike or a Lego set, something like that. 
You get the box, the box looks good, it's unopened, you open it, there's lots of pieces, you have the instructions, you start to put it together, and there's some key pieces that are missing. That's the worst. <laughs> Sometimes that's how life feels, doesn't it? Right? God gives us our life, our salvation. That's the box, that's the gift. Here's this great gift that we've been given. Thank you, Lord, for my life and my salvation. We open up on the surface, everything looks good. We have the instructions, which is our word, our Bible, and you know that the Bible is more than instructions. You know, I, I hate that, that you know, basic instruction is before leaving earth. No, it's more than that. But for this analogy, our Bible is our instruction manual. So we've got everything we need, right? Got your life, your salvation, got the Bible. Well, we start to follow the instructions. We open our Bibles, we're reading, we're in the Word, we're trying to do the things that the Bible says. But then we feel like we don't have all the pieces. We're missing something. Something's just not clicking. Or trial comes, tragedy comes, whatever it might be. Hardships, injustices in your life. You're being mistreated, you're being sinned against. There's cancer, there's death. There's a broken marriage or a broken friendship or loss of a job. How many times have you said or thought to yourself something like, I, I just can't take this anymore. I don't know what else to do. I can't handle this. I don't have what it takes. I can't get through this. Life is often like this. Faith sometimes feels this way. I, I don't, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I, I don't have what it takes. And it feels like we've been given this gift of life and salvation, but there's some pieces missing that doesn't make our faith really click or really go. And we, we kind of maybe get on that bike and we go and then it falls apart. And life and faith feels that way, but the truth is, is that life and faith is actually not that way. God, the manufacturer and perfecter of your faith, he has not forgotten any of the pieces. Everything you need for life and godliness has been granted to you by his divine power. Everything. Now, in our emotions, in our hurt, in our pain, or the cloudy darkness, the murkiness of sin or struggle, in our passions and pursuits of idols, we might misplace the pieces Maybe they get lost in your 70s shag carpet, which you should definitely get rid of by now. Maybe some of the pieces, you, you kick them accidentally, they go underneath the, the, the couch, but they've been given to you. Sometimes our sin, our own emotions, our own opinions, our own passions, our own idolatry gets in the way and clouds it so we can't see the pieces, but they're there. Everything you need is there. It's been given to you, but we get in the way. Just rest assured, God did not hold back or make a mistake. He did not forget to give you all that you need. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, He who didn't even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Why would he give you his very own son, Send him to the cross. He dies on the cross, but then he forgets to give you a little thing to get you through your financial trouble. That doesn't make sense. Right? He gives you Jesus, and Jesus dies on the cross for the most heinous sins that you've committed, every single sin, and you're wondering if he's going to get you through this next week because you know, you've got you know, some, some big event, some important event. And you're stressed, you're anxious, you're wondering if God's going to get you through it. But he's like, I gave you my son. He died on the cross. Why do you think I'm not going to give you everything else you need? So he gives us everything. But oftentimes we feel as though he has held back from us. Or he's watching us put together the Lego set or the bike. And he thinks, ah, they'll figure it out on their own. Maybe what happens is maybe sometimes we, we throw the instructions aside we ignore our time in the Word. We don't seek the wisdom of God. We look at the bike or the Lego set and we think, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. Hey, go get me a hammer. <laughs> right? We get the hammer and then that's, that's how we're going to make this thing work. We do things in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own way. We forget the instruction manual. We don't even open it up sometimes. And then we wonder, why are things not working? Why are things not working? 
but God has given us all that we need for life. And Peter quickly tells us how we receive these things. How do we receive all things for life and godliness? Back to verse 3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through... Okay, so these don't just fall in your lap. You don't get saved, and all of a sudden, you're just like, oh, I know how to do life now. That's not how that works. It's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. You get all things for life and godliness by growing in your knowledge of who God is. That's how you receive what you need for life. It's not by going and grabbing a hammer. It's by growing in the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Here's why. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. We receive all we need through the knowledge of him, the very one who called us to his own glory and excellence. So, so how do we grow? How do we change? We change as we get to know God more deeply, as we know the real Jesus more deeply. We change not by being told what to do, but by being told what he did for us. Right? You don't change just by being told, hey, just, just stop doing that, just stop sinning. Just knock it off. That's not how you change. It's like, well, I tried that already. We change by being told what he did for us. For those of you who are married or maybe you've had, you know, best friend in your life, good friends throughout the course of your life, the relationship doesn't grow positively when one person tells the other what to do all the time and how to do it right. That's not really just if you're doing, don't, don't do that anymore. Have you ever heard this? You're talking, you sit down with someone, and you ask, hey, so how'd you guys meet? How'd you know that she was the one? Oh, boy, I, I knew she was the one when I realized she really knows how to nag. I mean, she's just so good at just nagging me. That's how I knew she was the one. Have you, have you ever heard that before? Never heard that before. Oh, what, what, do you, what do you like about him? What, what drew you to him? Oh, I just, I love, he just always points out all my flaws and mistakes, I just love that about him. That's not what attracts you to people, is it? People who just kind of are fault finders and just show you how you're doing things wrong and nag you and correct you. That's not, that's not gonna help a relationship grow. You're not gonna fall more in love with someone because they're so good at nagging or pointing out how you're doing things wrong. That, that's just, that's not a relationship that's gonna be healthy. That's not someone you're gonna wanna keep spending more and more time with. That's not how a relationship grows. Instead, it's when your spouse or your friend continues to share their love for you, they encourage you, they express their desire for you. The more you get to know them, you share personal stories and insights, you fall more in love with them. And that transforms you and then strengthens the relationship. So this knowledge Peter speaks of isn't just information about God, or his do's and don'ts and his list of right and wrong, and that's part of all of it, but it's not just this biography. His word contains his precious and very great promises. That's what Peter's telling us here. And look what they do. Back to verse 3. His divine powers granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which, so this knowledge, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And here's why he gives us these great promises. So that through them you can become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. So we now also get to partake in this divine nature. We become one with him. Through the cross we escape the corruption that's in the world and even the corruption that's in our own hearts, even though we still battle it temporarily and daily but we've escaped from it permanently because we've become partakers with Christ in this divine nature. That even though this is a gift granted us by grace, it does not mean that we just sit back and just soak it in. Right, this is a gift given to you, but Peter's going to now show us that we don't just sit back and go, hey, thanks for this gift of grace, thanks for the Lego set. No, he's going to actually challenge us as well. See, an incredibly part of important part of our discipleship 
of our sanctification, of our growth in the grace of God is not just to be partakers of grace, but people also who live out this grace. So when we read the Word and when we read and even memorize these precious and great promises, we have to remember that for every great promise of God, there's also a follow-up for us. In some a little more uh, technical terms, we have what we call an indicative and an imperative. This is in your notes written down. The indicative is what indicates a truth to us. So it's a truth that is indicated to us. Right? We become partakers in the divine um, presence of God, the divine nature of God. We're partakers. That, that's a great indicative. And then the imperative then tells us what we must do in light of it. It's imperative then, therefore, that we do this because we're partakers in the divine nature. So I more often call it on Sundays the because and the therefore. Because is the indicative. Because of this great truth, then therefore, here's the imperative. Because he has made us partakers of the divine nature, because he has caused us to escape the corruption in this world, therefore, what should we do? What's our response? Do we just sit back and go, thank you, Jesus? Or is there something we should do in light of that? What's the imperative for us to pursue? Well, Peter's going to tell us. He says, for this very reason, therefore, the imperative, because of this, then for that very reason, here's what we're to do, church. Make every effort, effort, effort is required on your part and my part. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with, with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. These are very similar to Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. So Christian, it is imperative, therefore, that you make every effort to build and strengthen your faith. This word used for supplement here, it means a costly, generous participation. So you supplement these qualities. You are making a costly, generous, and sacrificial participation in the building of your faith. It's not just this thing that plops in your lap. So kids, moms, dads, husbands, wives, friends, Make every effort. It is on you to strengthen your faith. I'm not saying you alone, but you are to make every effort to strengthen your faith. So going through this list that builds upon each other, your faith should have virtue. Virtue is a high degree of character. But that character ought to be adorned with knowledge. You must grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to say, I just love Jesus. I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I don't need to know all these things in the Bible. I just love Jesus. That's not enough. That's not enough to grow. We have to know the Jesus that we love. If you don't know him, if you're not growing in that knowledge, if you simply love uh, this, I just love Jesus, if you don't know him, I'm going to put out to you that you probably are just loving some imaginary friend whose name is Jesus. If you don't know the Jesus of the Bible and you just love Jesus, I'm going to say that it's not the same Jesus. If you don't know him, it's just an imaginary friend called Jesus. You have to know the Jesus of the Bible. That means you got to be in the Word of God. It means you got to grow in your doctrine, your theology, and understanding who he is. You can't just say, I love Jesus. I can say I love any kind of celebrity out there, but do I know them? No, I don't know them. I might love how they act or how they sing or whatever, but I don't, I don't know them. And, and outside of their, their talent that I see from a distance, I, I can't have any kind of intimate relationship with them whatsoever. I can make up who I think they are in their private life, but I don't know them. You can't just say, I just love Jesus. You have to know Jesus. And I'll tell you this, the more you know him, the more you're going to love him. Right? So it's, it's a win-win. John 17, 17, Jesus himself says that it is truth that sanctifies us. It's the knowledge of Christ that actually changes and transforms us. But, but, 
Our knowledge, our doctrine, our theology needs to be supplemented with self-control. This one's big. Knowledge with self-control. I think we could use a bit more of that in this world. There's a lot of people with a lot of knowledge out there. We have more knowledge and more information than any generation ever, probably combined. You have more knowledge in your back pocket or in your purse right now than every generation probably combined. You, you can have anything right now. You have all knowledge available to you. It's crazy what we have. It is unbelievable the kind of knowledge we have compared to the rest of human history. We're more educated at, than at any other time in history. But do you think this generation is more wise? Do you think this generation has more character? Do you think this generation is more satisfied with life? Do you think this generation is healthier spiritually and emotionally than previous generations? And I'm talking about believers and non-believers. We need knowledge with self-control. We need to have self-control. But you know what you need if you aim to have self-control with your knowledge? You also need steadfastness. Because think about it. Let's say you've got tons of self-control. And you're in a situation in which you're keeping yourself, your emotions, your opinions, your frustrations. You're keeping it all in check by the power of the Spirit. So you've got some self-control. Right? You kind of know what's going on. You kind of have this knowledge. You kind of see some things. But you've got self-control. You're doing pretty good. You're not just blurting things out emotionally, whatever. But what if that situation keeps going? and going, and going, and going, and going, and it never ends. Self-control is going to need a helping hand because that self-control is going to run out. So Peter says you need steadfastness also, not just self-control. You need steadfastness if you want to have self-control over the long haul. Self-control in a sprint doesn't help much if you're running a marathon. So you can't just have self-control. You need steadfastness as well. But that steadfastness, Peter says, also needs to be supplemented with godliness, a patience that comes from the Lord, a godly type of steadfastness, has the qualities and characteristics of God himself, that kind of steadfastness, steadfastness that is merciful, that's peaceful, that's gentle, that's humble, that's meek, that's righteous, that's just, and that's shepherdly. So, so now all of a sudden we're getting this picture of knowledge. It's not good enough just to have knowledge. We need knowledge with self-control, but that knowledge with self-control needs to have steadfastness, and that steadfastness needs to be godly. So all of a sudden we're just seeing uh, it's not enough just to say, oh, I love Jesus or oh, I know Jesus, but we need all these godly characteristics to shape these things. And godly steadfastness, Peter says, that strengthens the self-control that governs your knowledge should lead you to brotherly affection, acting in love towards others. So if your knowledge, what you know about doctrine and theology and all the things that are going on in the world and all the stuff, if that knowledge and virtue and your faith isn't governed by a self-control and steadfastness that results in brotherly affection and that ultimately, Peter says, results in the greatest of all of these things, which is love, his final one, if that knowledge does not lead to brotherly affection and love, well, Peter says, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Look what he says in verse 9. Whoever lacks these qualities, you lack brotherly affection, you, you lack love, you lack self-control with your knowledge. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. He's blind. Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You forgot where you came from. You forgot that you came out of darkness. And now all you do is just with your knowledge, with your, your big faith that doesn't have godliness or self-control or steadfastness, now you just, you just judge other people with your knowledge and your, your showy faith. So you become nearsighted so much that you are blind. And remember here, Peter's addressing believers, and yet he says you can become blinded. You've got a plank in your eye, to use Jesus' words. I am incredibly nearsighted, physically, and oftentimes spiritually. <laughs> uh, by the time I was 14, uh, my, my, eyes, my eyesight was 20-1200. 
I know a lot of people don't know what that means exactly. What it means is if you have perfect vision and we're standing right here, if you can see a sign, read a sign from 1,200 feet away, which is four football fields, 1,200 feet away, for me to read that same exact sign, I, have, I had to be 20 feet away from it. Okay, so 20, 1,200. So you're reading this thing. I got to be like right up next to it to be able to read this sign. That's how I was legally blind uh, before I had LASIK surgery and all this stuff. Uh, there was a time when I was 14, it was my first job, uh, and I was working really late that night, and uh, I was a dishwasher, and I forget exactly what happened, but I had to take my contacts out. I think I got like some chemicals or something in my eyes or something, just, you know, cleaning dishes, and so I had to take both my contacts out at the end of the night, and I was supposed to give a friend of mine a ride home, uh, and I'm only 14, you can get your license in South Dakota at 14, so, uh, so 14-year-old logic says, well, I got to give you a ride home, who should drive? You don't have a license, but you can see, uh, and I'm blind, but I have a license, so who should drive? Well, clearly I should drive, right, because I have the license, even though I can't see. Uh, so it's about 1 or 1.30 in the morning, it's very late, and I have to drive my friend home, and as we're driving uh, all along this road, I'm just like, he's, he's kind of guiding me, he's like my seeing eye dog. And so I'm just driving, like barely seeing like this, the yellow line. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden I come to a stop sign and I, I stop. And uh, he says, dude, what are you doing? I said, well, I stopped. And he goes, why? So well, there, there's a stop sign right there. He goes, that's not a stop sign. That's, that's one of those drug-free zone signs. <laughs> it was just like a little rectangular red sign that said drug because we were by a school. But when you are nearsighted and you got astigmatism, this little sign becomes huge and blurry. So to me, it was a stop sign. I don't know how I got home that night. Um, I dropped him off, and then I was alone. I didn't have my seeing eye dog with me. I made it home. I, I remember driving very, very, very slow. Uh, but, uh, but what Peter's saying here about this nearsightedness, and the same thing that I experienced being nearsighted, is that when you're nearsighted, you have to get so close to an object to really discern it and see it, to know what it actually is. And it becomes the only thing you can see because you have to get this close to it. And when you do this, you lose all peripheral vision. You can't see anything. If you even hold your hand here and you focus on your hand, everything else becomes blurry. One, it's obstructing a lot of stuff. We've done that a lot with our, our kind of idle analogy. But even if you focus on the hand, everything else becomes blurry because you become nearsighted. You can't see the big picture. You can't see the whole thing. You can't see the long view. All you see is the one thing that you are obsessed over. Maybe it's your own sin. Your own sin just keeps you in shame, keeps you hidden, keeps you isolated. Maybe it's an idol, something that you just you need to have, you want to have, something that bothers you, and you just always focus on it. Maybe it's a circumstance in your life. Maybe it's the sins of other people. You're just always looking for other people's sins. You kind of feel like you're the theological police or the sin police. Or maybe it's your view of how other people live their lives, but you just have this thing that you're so focused on, you're so close that you can't see the big picture. You become nearsighted. But it can also be good things like your faith and your knowledge. So Peter's saying, look, even if you have knowledge without self-control and steadfastness and brotherly affection and love, then you're doing it wrong. You'll be nearsighted if you don't have knowledge with all those things. If you don't have faith with all those things, you will become nearsighted. So even good things that we have, like faith, like knowledge, if we don't have these qualities, we will become so nearsighted, we become blind. I'll give you a couple examples that I've gone through in my, my own life. Um, years ago, there was this guy at our, our old church. This is probably 15 years ago now. This guy, for some reason, was obsessed with the doctrine of divorce and remarriage. And he himself was a single guy, but for some reason, he just had this obsession over it. He just wanted our church to just always teach about divorce and remarriage. And that's not an insignificant topic, but he would demand that he would meet with us, pastors, I think there was like five of us at the time, six of us, and, he, and he'd bring in all these books and like, even like these like big papers that he would write, like he would write these like kind of dissertations. And he would just get so angry that we just wouldn't teach it every single week and make a big deal. And we're like saying, this isn't insignificant, but you're, you're so nearsighted, you're blind, there's just this obsession with this one topic. It's not a bad topic, but it drove him. There's another guy a few years ago uh, who was so irritated about a sermon that I gave uh, in the Psalms. Uh, and so just this one sermon, and uh, he emailed me and 
told me that I'm, I'm lazy in my sermon prep and uh, I'm a lazy preacher and I'm too administratively busy to be any pastorally good. And uh, I asked if, you know, we can get together and talk about this. And he said, no, it's just an observation I had. I just wanted you to know. And then, you know, quickly after he left the church. No, I found out later just through some correspondence that this apparently was a thing in his old church. And so now he's on the hunt. So anything that kind of remotely reminds him of something that someone else did, he's projecting that onto me because he's so focused on this thing. He's so nearsighted that he becomes blind. He can't see the big picture. Right, and so uh, this becomes his obsession. I was with Tom from IBCD uh, a few years ago, and we were, I was getting counsel uh, on a guy who had an obsession over a very particular doctrinal issue, and um, Tom just very simply just tells me that's just immaturity on his part. When lesser doctrines become bigger and more important than the gospel itself, and everything then starts being funneled through this view Everything is filtered through this view. And so now all of a sudden, anything, so there's a suspicion that kind of grows, whether it's divorce and remarriage or whether it's, you know, lazy preaching or whatever it might be, all of a sudden, this becomes the thing. And those are just a few examples of nearsightedness. They become the focal point for us. Again, this could be sin, could be our idols, or it could be good things like doctrine. Those aren't unimportant topics. I take seriously a charge of lazy sermon prep. I want to I know biblically about divorce and remarriage, but when these things become so important that we become nearsighted and we lack then brotherly affection, we lack self-control, we lack steadfastness, then all of a sudden we just you know, drop our cargo and we go. We just leave. Right? Because there's no, there's no love, there's no patience, no self-control, no steadfastness. Ultimately, this is unloving and does not glorify Christ. And that's what Peter's point is. R.C. Sproul comments about this in his commentary. He says, it's so much easier for us to forego watching movies, for instance, than it is to acquire a character that is known for patience, kindness, and meekness. What he means by that, in other words, is that it's, it's easy to speak of your knowledge. It's easy to talk about what you condemn. R.C. Sproul's example is movies. It's easy for us to talk about what we disapprove of, whether it's you know, divorce and remarriage or lazy sermons, rated our movies, whatever. It's easy for us to just spout off who you disapprove of, how you would do things differently, how you feel. It's easy to talk about how you think things should be different, how you think everyone else should be. Anyone can open their mouth and let the world know their opinions on anything and everything. But as R.C. Sproul is saying, it is much harder to have that same knowledge and opinions with godliness, self-control, brotherly affection, patience, and meekness that steers it. That part's hard. We all have opinions. We all have knowledge. But do you have those opinions and knowledge with these qualities? That's the hard part. And Peter says, if these qualities are yours, you've got these things going on, and you're increasing in those qualities, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're circling back to knowledge here. So if you have these qualities, then those qualities will keep you from being ineffective. These qualities will actually cause you to be effective and fruitful with your knowledge, not ineffective and unfruitful with your knowledge. So Peter says you can have knowledge of the Lord Jesus, but be ineffective and unfruitful Church, knowledge does not equal wisdom. It does not. Knowledge, even if you're right about your knowledge, can actually reveal you to be a fool. Do you know that? You can be right in your knowledge, but by opening up your mouth, even with right knowledge, you can reveal yourself as being a fool. We can be revealed as fools even when we're right. Early on in my Pastor, I made my, my first bookshelf that I made for myself. I wrote on one of the shelves, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. I look at my books, all the books, and I just yesterday just loaded up my, my new bookshelf. And whenever I look at my books, I just I remind myself, I don't want this just to be knowledge. I want this to cause me to love Jesus more and love people more. Remember, Paul said the same thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. 
If I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and I have all the knowledge in the world, if I have all the faith in the world and I can even remove mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. I'm not, it's not lesser than or like close. Like that's pretty good. No, I am nothing. Nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, I'm a martyr for the sake of Christ. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, and endures all things. Love has steadfastness. Love has self-control. So going back to 2 Peter, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, so in light of that, that we need to supplement our faith with all these things, supplement our knowledge with all these things. So in light of that, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, self-control, steadfastness, if you practice things, you will never fall. Right? Peter knows a thing or two about falling. We should listen to him. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter tells us to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. What does that mean? Does, this sounds kind of important. I want to confirm my election. First of all, what is our calling and election? This is speaking of your salvation. God has called you and chosen for you to be saved. You don't, you don't call yourself to salvation. I thus summon myself unto the salvation of God, which I do not deserve. Praise be to me. That's not how your calling works. That's not how you get saved. Now, you don't elect yourself. Yes, I'd like to elect myself to eternal life. Thank you. You can nominate yourself all day long, but you cannot elect yourself. God has granted to you. He has chosen you and called you to be his son or daughter so that you can partake in the divine nature. This has been granted to you. You didn't self-elect. You didn't self-call. It's been granted to you. But is it up to us to confirm it, to make it sure? Is it up to us to kind of seal the deal? That's kind of weird, right? Does God grant it to us, but then we have to ensure it somehow? That's not what Peter's saying. Let's say you return something that you got at a store. You bought it, paid for it, took it home. Doesn't fit, doesn't whatever. It's paid for. So you own it. It's yours. But it's hard to take that back to the store and prove that it's yours unless you have a receipt. You walk in, you want your money back. The cashier says, well, you need a receipt. The receipt doesn't make your ownership sure. The receipt just proves that you're the owner. Does that make sense? Big difference there, right? The receipt doesn't actually make you the owner. It just proves that you're the owner. And that's a distinct difference. So in other words, let's say, let's say you, you plant an orange tree. How do you prove that you planted an orange tree? Well, you water it, you care for it, and you're being diligent and making every effort to help it produce fruit. Now the fruit, when it comes, the fruit isn't what makes it an orange tree, is it? The fruit just proves that it's an orange tree. The DNA of the tree is what proves that it's an orange tree. The fruit just actually proves it. So there's nothing you can do to make your salvation secure or make you more stronger in the security of your salvation. There's nothing you can do. The DNA is already there. If you're born again, you're saved. You have equal standing with everyone else who is born again. That DNA is set. You're already the owner of that salvation. It is yours. It has been granted to you. That's already there. Christ already paid for it. He already planted the tree, watered it, germinated it. It's already there. It's been finished. It's his divine power that granted you the salvation. You are, to use our orchard example, you are an orange tree if you've been born again. That's in your DNA, no matter what. But what we do, then therefore, we're to be diligent to confirm what it is that Christ did, to prove what Christ did, not in a securing way, that's been finished, but in an evidential way, proving with evidence, yes, I am an orange tree. Yes, God did this in me. So James, he says in his epistle, if you say you have faith, show me your works. What he's saying, if you say you've been given salvation, show me the receipt. If you say you're an orange tree, show me the oranges. Your works, your character, 
the fruit of the Spirit in your life, all these things act sort of like a receipt or fruit that confirms that you are indeed born again. So Peter's encouraging us here. You have knowledge of Jesus. You have faith. You say you've been granted salvation. Then be diligent and grow in these qualities of self-control, godliness, steadfastness, brotherly affection. If you don't have those things, you're going to be ineffective. Some of you are born again, but maybe you're unsure. or Maybe you feel a little insecure in it. Not because... Your salvation is unsure or, or insecure. I'm talking about those of you who are truly born again. It's not your salvation that's insecure or your salvation that's unsure, but you're insecure or unsure because you lack fruit that confirms it. You don't know where the receipt is. You're like, I, I think I have salvation. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know where the receipt is. I'm, I'm pretty sure they gave it to me. So it's not that you're not an orange tree. It's just that you don't really know if you are because there's no oranges. Right? And that's, that's not a good thing. You will continue to be ineffective, as Peter says, fruitless and nearsighted. And so Peter says, make every effort. Fight to build your faith. Don't just sit around and focus on your sin or other things or other idols to where you become nearsighted. Make every effort to grow in that faith. You are an orange tree. Now others of you may be Believe that you're born again, but you're not. You're confident that you are, but yet you can't actually confirm it. You don't have fruit, you don't have a receipt, but yet somehow you just say, no, I, I know I am. But knowledge alone, a confession or belief in God alone, raising your hand at an altar call, none of those things are confirming. Those aren't the things that confirm your salvation. You can have all knowledge. You can believe. The demons believe. Jesus even said, many will say to me in the end, Lord, 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 we did all these things in your name. We did stuff. We did stuff. We did stuff. We even cast out demons. Judas followed Jesus for three years. None of the disciples suspected that he was the one that would, that would betray Jesus. So he had some kind of outward look that looked like I'm a disciple. None of those things are actual spiritual fruit. None of them are confirming of internal born-again change. So my hope for you, as we close up here, my, my hope, I hope for, for three groups here. My hope for you, if, if you're truly born again, I want you to be able to confirm for your own sake and also for the sake of others who need the blessing of a confident, godly, humble, overflowing with the fruit of the Holy Spirit kind of believer for your sake and for their sake, my hope for you is that you would be diligent in confirming the calling of your salvation. My hope for you, if you're not truly born again, but you think you are, I hope that you take very seriously that you might not be born again, even though you think you are. Don't be fooled. You might be so nearsighted that you're blind. Maybe that nearsightedness is, oh, I raised my hand at a church camp. And so you're so focused on this raising hand thing that you don't see the big picture that you're not really producing fruit. Right? So whatever it is, I don't want you to be fooled and think you're born again if you are not. So my hope for you is that you would be diligent in confirming your calling. Confirm your election. Prove by pursuing these things, as Peter's saying, pursue these things so that when you have this fruit, now you can actually be confident in what was already there. Again, I'm not saying you earn salvation by producing fruit. I'm saying you prove your salvation by producing fruit. Right, so I, that's what I want for you. And then my hope for all of us, regardless of where you're at, maybe you're one of those two things or maybe you're something else, is that all of us would aim to supplement, to generously participate and give to our knowledge, build our knowledge with self-control, with steadfastness, with godliness, with brotherly affection, and with love. That's my desire for all of us. So I want to pray now, and I want to pray in a way that we say to the Lord, I know, God, that you have given me all that I need, and I want to grow in that knowledge. I want to grow in that 
I don't want to live in a way where I'm just acting like uh, I'm not given everything. You've held back. I'm getting bitter and angry at God and other people because God's not. I want to pray in a way that says, God, you have given me everything I need for life and godliness. Help me to pursue, to pursue proving and confirming this, this gift of salvation that you've given to me. I want to grow as a Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Yet we go through life acting like we're poor. Woe is me. Focus on our sin. Focus on other people's sin. Focus on our idols. Focus on our hardships, our circumstances. And these things aren't necessarily minor things. They're not unimportant things. But as your servant James said in his epistle, we don't have because we don't ask. And then when we ask, we ask wrongly for the wrong things, to spend it on our own passions. So it's not that you have not given us all that we need. It's that our eyes are just looking in the wrong places. The pieces we think are missing from the box, but we've, just missed, we've misplaced them. We're so nearsighted that we don't even see the pieces that you've given us. So help us to grow in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The knowledge of, of you who called us to your excellence and glory. That we would grow in the knowledge of what you have done for us in cleansing us from all of our sin. That we would not become so nearsighted as we so often do with any number of things. Good things, bad things, sinful things, gifts you've given us. These things hold us back unnecessarily. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to live our lives as if we know that you have given us all things that we need for life and godliness. Help us live in that way with that perspective. Because we know that if we do that, as your servant Peter said, we will never fall. Now, of course, we're going to fall because we lose sight of these things, but we're asking for help that we would pursue these things and be diligent in pursuing these things, that you would help us to supplement our faith with knowledge and our knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly love and brotherly, brotherly affection with love. Help us, Lord. Help us to be able to confirm daily, weekly, monthly our calling and election. You are so, so good to us for giving us this salvation. Now, God, give us, grant to us the strength, the wisdom to do the therefore, to do the imperative, to not let off the gas, to be sacrificial in our pursuit of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.